So I don't think this passage makes anyone's top ten favorites list. These are, these are tough words from Jesus, if we can just sit with that for a second. They're hard things to hear for just about anyone in any time, then and now. One of the things I think I should say to start out with this too is that um, there's sometimes a temptation to hear things like this and uh, to want to go to the nice Jesus. <laughs> Um, there are other moments where Jesus just seems so calm. and Even in the passage right before this where He grabs a child and takes it in His arms. And we want that Jesus again rather than the Jesus who's talking about these harsh things. And the thing that we have to do, work hard to do, is to see that, um, that these things go together. There is a full picture of Jesus, a whole person, and we have to make sense of how Jesus does both of these things. We can trust that Jesus said these things. If you have any doubts about that, any struggles with whether these things should are authentic, then let's talk after. We have good reasons for saying that Jesus said this, and we can trust it. Now, one of the children's books we read at home a lot, Katie and I read them to each other. Right? Now, we read a book that depicts a family on a hike. They're actually, it says they're going on a bear hunt. And as they encounter the different terrain on this bear hunt, this hike, it has this mantra. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You've got to go through it. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't always make literal sense in every situation. Sometimes you actually can go through it or can go over it, excuse me. Um, But it's fun to say. And that's the way it is with this passage. We've got to go through it. We can't go around it. We can't go under it or over it. We've got to go through it. We have to listen to Jesus on every front. And this is what I love about walking through a gospel in this way, is that we come up against these passages that we've got to deal with them. So in case you missed last week, I want to catch you up on where we are in Mark's gospel. We're in a section that's often called the way. Mark's way section, or even the way of our Lord. And the reason it's called this is because many times, very many times in just a few chapters, Mark speaks of Jesus and His disciples being on the way. And the way that he's talking about is the way of the cross. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem where He is going to give His life for others. He says it in chapter 10, and just a little later, he's going to say he's giving his life as a ransom for sins, and what he means is he's giving his life for others, for the sins of humanity, and for the world, for the evil that has distorted God's world. And Jesus is using his final days with the disciples to teach them and to sort of normalize for them this counterintuitive way of living a way of self-sacrifice and service. As strange as it may be, Jesus is saying that this is the best way to live. The only way to be a true, flourishing human in this world. The only way for communities like ours to truly thrive is when people embrace this way of the cross. Our world is upside down. 
And this is the way that humans were truly made to live, is this way of the cross. And last week we spoke about this in terms of what it has to do with pursuing greatness. Can we still pursue greatness and the way of the cross at the same time? These are the questions that came together last week. Can we pursue greatness and the way of the cross? And the answer was a resounding yes. That's actually what Jesus wants. That we would pursue greatness as a way of serving others and of seeking to bring life to others. So, uh, teenagers, as you pursue a career and as all of us carry out our vocations in various ways, it's important to be mindful of this, that Jesus wants Christians pursuing excellence in every area of life and leveraging their work to serve the well-being of others. This is the kind of greatness Jesus desires us to pursue. Now, in the passage this morning, Jesus warns us about two very dangerous pitfalls on the way of the cross. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, is two very dangerous pitfalls on the way of the cross. And the first danger, the first pitfall, is when we begin to believe that what we do, that our life is about us and not about Jesus. That our life is about us and not about Jesus. So John, he's come to Jesus essentially to tattle on this unauthorized exorcist, right? Jesus, we saw this man who was casting out demons in your name. But then, in a way, John wants to assure Jesus, don't worry, we took care of it. We, we told him, we tried to stop him. He has this a little bit of pride, tinge of pride, it seems like. Don't worry, Jesus, we tried to stop him. We're taking care of this for you. But look closely with me at verse 38. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 38. And notice what John says. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Isn't it interesting that he says he wasn't following us rather than he wasn't following you? This whole endeavor that started with following Jesus has somehow turned into following us instead of following Jesus. Things have become less about Jesus and more about John and this band of disciples. Now, of course, John would not say this. And to his credit, <clears throat> it's not even what he intends. He's not trying to be selfish here. He's not trying to turn inward. But have you ever had one of those situations where your words reveal your heart in a way that you, would, you wish you could take back? <laughs> where you, just by what you say, it, it's coming out and you realize, oh, I'm just a jerk. I'm just being selfish right now. That's what's happening here, I think. I think it's this selfish turn that leads John and the rest of the disciples into a sort of tribalistic attitude. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. They turn in so that whoever isn't among them automatically isn't with Jesus either. And this is what Jesus is correcting. And this is the pitfall that we can fall into also. We, we can start out in the right place 
that we pursue our job, we work hard in school or as a volunteer in something, we work hard in our marriage, or we, we start out with the right intentions with church. We begin with the right outlook. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about others. But over time, we settle in and we return to natural instincts, which is to make things about us, not so much God or others. And here's what happens when we start to make things about us. The world starts to get very small. And the ways that God can work start to get more and more narrow. We stop listening well to others. We become closed off and defensive rather than open and generous. So what does Jesus say that John should have done with this unauthorized exorcist? He shouldn't have stopped him because he was working in Jesus' name. In other words, John should have been able to appreciate what this guy was doing, even if the guy wasn't necessarily with him and the rest of the disciples. When our lives are less about us and more about Jesus, we can learn to appreciate what other people bring to the table, even if they aren't necessarily a part of our team. So as we think about Church of the Lamb in Elkton, you know, the reality is that there are lots of churches who are doing really good work in this community, loving people well. And the job of our church is to see those churches and to say, yes, praise God that there are churches who are ministering the good news of Jesus in this place. And to ask, what can we learn from them? What is it that they're doing? What's the charism, the gift that they have that we don't have that we can get some advice and learn about? Here's what I think we should draw from this. That our posture toward others should be to bless them rather than to compete with them. Some of you might remember a couple of Sundays ago, Bishop Andudu was with us. And he preached on this story of Jesus' disciples not being able to cast out a demon. Do you remember this? It's, it's just a few sections before this. Jesus' disciples encounter this demon and they're not able to deal with it. Jesus has to deal with it himself. Well, in this situation, we have an amateur who's being successful at casting out the demons. It's as if he's showing up the disciples and making them look bad. You wonder if John is a little bit jealous about this. But maybe instead of trying to shut down his business, what John and the disciples could have done was asked him for his advice. Somehow, this guy had learned some things about Jesus that the disciples hadn't picked up on yet. And they could have learned from him. But instead, they try to shut him down. When we make life about us rather than about Jesus, we're not able to ask for advice like this. We've got our guard up. And Jesus is trying to get the disciples out of this rut. Now, what about you? Is your life more about you right now, or is your life more about Jesus? Is it centered on you, your marriage, your job, 
your relationship to uh, uh, friends, to your church? Is, is it more about you or is it more about Jesus and what Jesus wants to do? Is your posture, this is a way of being able to answer this question, is your posture more in general closed off and defensive or is it more open and generous for people in general? As we're about to hear, this pitfall of turning in, of being closed off, it can have serious consequences. Very serious consequences. So we have to be careful that we keep our eyes on the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, which is open and generous and blessing of others, and that we don't turn in on ourselves. Now, This is the first dangerous pitfall on the way of the cross. We start to believe that what we do is about us less than it is about Jesus. Now here's where it starts to get very interesting. Things escalate quickly in this situation. And Jesus turns up the heat. So the second dangerous pitfall is underestimating sin's consequences. The first is we turn in on ourselves. We make things about us. The second pitfall is that we underestimate sin's consequences. Well, let me ask this question as we get into this point. Why does Jesus use such violent and even death-dealing language? Listen to this verse again. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. How? I see two reasons that Jesus does this, that Jesus uses such shocking language. One, because Jesus is radically opposed to ways of life that bring death. Jesus is radically opposed to ways of life that bring death. Death to oneself or death to others. So when Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it'd be better for him if he's thrown into the sea with a millstone around him. He seems to be getting on to the disciples for potentially damaging the faith of this anonymous disciple. So little one in this context doesn't necessarily mean child. It can mean child, but it's more broad than that. And the direct application is what comes before this anonymous disciple. You see, this disciples, this band of disciples, have been given a certain amount of authority. They are recognized as the people who spend the most amount of time with Jesus. This anonymous disciple is vulnerable to feeling like he has not been given the same amount of authority as those disciples. So when they shut him down, he's vulnerable to feeling like he can't truly relate to Jesus. He can't truly follow Jesus in the same way that these disciples do. And so Jesus is very firm with them. Be careful lest you damage the faith of another. The disciples are going to have to learn to develop tactics that are not so harsh. They're going to have to be careful in the ways that they use their authority so that they don't hurt the faith of others. So that they don't belittle others who might have a weak faith. Now, we can also apply this to parents with children. This is a very good application. 
It is entirely possible for parents to misuse their authority. To be so hard on their children and to shame them in such a way that we bring a lasting form of death into their lives. Where they feel bad about themselves. Where they feel that they are bad. God has entrusted our children to us so that we can care for their souls and shepherd them in the ways of God. But we can, uh, we can teach the faith and teach commandments and law in such a way that we hurt our children and make them indifferent to the faith rather than to love the faith. Instead of wooing them to God, we push them away by being too harsh. So why does Jesus use such stern and violent language? Because He's radically opposed to ways of life, ways of treating others that bring a form of death rather than life. But also, the reason Jesus uses such violent language is because the path that we live now anticipates our future. This is extremely important. The path that we live now in this life anticipates our future, even eternity. So three times Jesus says it's better that we remove one of our own body parts if it causes us to sin rather than letting ourselves be thrown into hell. Now in speaking of hell, Jesus is using this word Gehenna. Gehenna. It, spe- it comes from a Hebrew for the Valley of Hinnom. There was a valley just outside of Jerusalem, and historically the Israelites had engaged in idolatrous practices in this valley, had, had even sacrificed their own children to a false Canaanite god. By the time of Jesus, uh, Gehenna was this garbage heap that was almost constantly burning And the smells there were were anything but pleasant. But by the time of Jesus, all of this uh, history that had taken place in Gehenna had become associated with the eternal judgment. And what Jesus does is He combines it both with present judgment and future judgment. He's saying that if you're living in a way right now that is sinful, and that is evil, that way anticipates the judgment that you will receive at the end. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, the stakes are really high. The choices we make now are extremely serious. Now, very few people in history have tried to say that Jesus is speaking literally about removing parts of our body. Even There have been those who have tried and they realized it was a mistake. That it didn't help. But, Jesus is without doubt advocating ruthless action against all our sinful drives, our temptations and attachments because no earthly good or pleasure is too costly to give up in view of gaining eternal life. Whatever you have to give up now, in order to attain the life that Jesus promises, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. 
So why does Jesus speak so violently? Because He's radically opposed to ways of life that bring death and because the stakes are too high to soft-pedal the issue. The path we live on now anticipates our future destiny. So this is the second pitfall in the way of the cross, that we underestimate sin's consequences. Now, I don't go Puritan on us too often, I don't think. I think this is actually the first time I'll have ever gone Puritan on you. But the Puritans love to talk about sin. They were probably a little too good at it, but they had some really good insights. So the Puritan John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, a very Puritan title. And in it, he said this, we must at all times be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must at all times be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, I realize this is dramatic, but hear the point. If you are not feeling the need to resist evil in some way, it's probably because evil is having its way with you. If you are not feeling the need to resist evil in some way, it could be because evil is having its way with you. Whether that is some form of selfishness, it it, it could be something that's very small, that's just growing in you. Selfishness. Or it could be something like lust, that if you let it grow, it is going to take over your life. You will become addicted to pornography or whatever it may be that will begin to consume your life and you will begin to make choices little by little that could come to the point of ruining you. And Jesus is saying we do not soft pedal these things. Whatever it may be that's leading in you to, into sin, cut it off. Cut it off. Are you willing to do what it takes to fight sin? I think we also need to receive what Jesus says that it might require us even to give up something good for a time so that we can learn not to use wrongly. So there's nothing inherently wrong with hands, feet, and eyes, is there? There's nothing wrong with them. These are gifts of God. But sometimes in order to deal with the evil in our lives, we have to sacrifice even those things that are good. Listen, I came from a background that really made people feel shameful about consuming alcohol. And I am so happy to be in a place where we don't do that. I can't tell you how happy I am about it. (laughs) I cannot. But listen carefully. Drunkenness is still wrong. Sometimes we have to sacrifice the thing that is very good so that we don't enter into a way of life that will ruin us, that's unwise. I'm thankful that we can look at the Bible and and confirm and affirm sexuality as good. Marriage as good. And yet, we need to be careful. We need to be careful where lust leads us. All of us. Are you willing to do what it takes to fight sin? We must be willing to get rid of even good things to deal with our sin. We are talking about a genuine battle between good and evil that's taking place within all of us. And in battles, extreme steps have to be taken. 
This is war. And so we treat it like war and we take the steps that must be taken. So let me just let you sit with this. Are you dealing with the sin in your life? Are you taking it as seriously as you need to? Now there are two errors I think that are made in preaching and in having conversations about hell. One is denying hell altogether. Suggesting that the whole idea would require a God who's a moral monster, who is cruel. But as I've said, Jesus seems to use such violent language because He actually despises death and He wants life to thrive. I want to share with you some words from C.S. Lewis on this that are very helpful to me. This is from his classic allegory on heaven and hell called The Great Divorce, which is a short read that will sit with you forever if you, will, uh, if you could take the time to read that. Here's what Lewis says. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. I want to read that one more time. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. You see, what God is actually doing in allowing a hell to exist is He's granting us the dignity of choice. He is granting us the dignity of being free creatures. And He's allowing us to choose. Will we follow the way of life that Jesus has paved out for us, the way of the cross, or will we follow the way of death that is rejection of God and the love that He offers. Now, the first error is that denying hell altogether. The second error made in preaching and conversation on hell is when we think we know who's going to be there. We have this over-infatuation with hell where we, we, we love to think about it, to talk about it, and to pick out the people that we think are going. This isn't the way Jesus is talking. This isn't Jesus' posture. I think if we're to embrace what Jesus is saying is about hell, we have to take the path that sees hell as a warning. It is real. It is a real warning against seeing life, our choices now, as lacking seriousness. There, there is this idea out there in the world we live in that the real me is not the choices I make right now, really. It's this thing that's deep, deep down in me that you can't really see, and only I get to tell you what that is. But what Jesus is saying is that our choices matter and that these choices determine who we are and who we become, not only in this life, but in the next one as well. So are you taking your decisions seriously? Are you recognizing the eternal consequences of the life that you're living? Now, what is the way of the cross? 
It's the way of being truly human. Of living not for oneself alone, but presenting oneself to God as a sacrificial offering. Knowing that this is the way to life. The genuine life and flourishing. As counterintuitive as it may be in our upside down world, it is in, in presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to God that we will find genuine life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.